What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Slovakia, an anti-corruption platform has propelled a former media tycoon into power, and even he was surprised. A coalition government is set to be revealed, but can it agree on all the reforms the country needs, besides getting rid of graft? And plenty of people will tell you that speaking more than one language comes with social benefits. Some studies also suggest you get a brain boost. Maybe. No matter, says our language columnist, learn another language because it's useful and fun. But first... In response to the biggest outbreak of COVID-19 outside China, authorities in Italy have instituted the biggest lockdown outside China. Over the weekend, regions in the north, accounting for a quarter of the country's population, were told to stay put. And last night, the Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte extended limitations on travel, sporting events, and public gatherings to the entire country, saying simply that there is no time. Ma purtroppo tempo non ce n'è. Reactions to climbing infection numbers are spooking markets and governments the world over. Yesterday, American stocks had their worst day since the financial crisis, jolted further after Saudi Arabia launched into an unexpected oil price war. Brent crude fell the furthest since the first Gulf War. The coronavirus is exposing fragility everywhere in governments, health systems, supply chains, and markets that just weeks ago were hitting record highs. The outbreaks are forcing governments' hands on taking extreme measures, with approval from the World Health Organization. We're encouraged that Italy is taking aggressive measures. Italy is something of a test case for how democratic societies will have to confront the epidemic to balance public health against the public mood. So far, it's very difficult to gauge the uh, reaction of ordinary people, and not least because of the difficulties now of moving around the country. John Hooper is our Italy and Vatican correspondent. But uh, the media reaction, I think, is one of astonishment that things should have got this far, uh, that the entire country, in effect, is being told stay at home, and just don't move. And how likely is the populace to to follow that advice? Will they take it on board that these are measures for their own good, not just bureaucratic rules to be sidestepped? I think that that is yet to be seen in uh, the South particularly, uh, where there's plenty of evidence already that people were not taking the threat seriously. Uh, People were still going to the beaches on a sunny day and mixing in the same way that they they always had done. Um, I spoke 
to uh, somebody the other day who said, you know, he was still getting calls from his friends saying, you know, let's all meet up at such and such a bar for uh, an early aperitivo. And he said uh, they were astonished when he said no, because that's going to mean me rubbing shoulders with you and the government measures say that we've not got to be within one metre of each other. Habits are hard to change uh, and particularly in a society which is intensely social and where the sociality, if you like, is very physical. So I think that it is difficult to say whether this shock therapy, which is what the Prime Minister has called it, will actually get through to the whole country what is now very much realised in the North, which is, this is deadly serious. Authorities in Italy have had to make, and will still have to make, some hard choices. But it's only a matter of time until other countries will be faced with similar dilemmas. I'm pretty sure that what we're seeing in Italy will will spread across the world with, with lags. Edward Carr is The Economist's deputy editor. So, for instance, the UK is a few weeks behind Italy. The West Coast may be a week behind Italy. The Midwest may be three weeks behind Italy. And you'll see the disease gradually spread uh, around the world. And and some countries will be better at dealing with others. But I, I think we can be fairly sure now that it's going to hit many, many countries. Italy now seems to be very much following in the, in the footsteps of China. But there's this suggestion that different regimes will struggle with different elements of the problem. How do you see that diversity playing out? Well, I think there are a number of ways of thinking about how governments and societies will respond to this. One is that the epidemic asks societies to judge individual liberties and individual freedoms to move around and go about your business against the interest of the collective. And I think that's a a uh, a trade-off that authoritarian countries find very easy. The collective always wins. It's much harder in democracies exactly how to make those trade-offs. And one of the things you've seen in Italy, it's a not exactly a voluntary quarantine, but it's not enforced in anything like the way that the uh, Chinese quarantines have been enforced, and especially in Hubei province. At the same time, the Italians don't have these huge numbers of teams coming down and finding every case and then trying to identify the contacts that case has made and then trying to lock them down with often quite forceful and oppressive measures. In Italy, because it's Italy, because it's a Western democracy, it's much more a question of people having the awareness and self-discipline and sense of citizenship, if you like, to be willing to quarantine themselves and change their behaviour. And I think it's not clear yet whether that means that the quarantine comes with quite a lot of the costs of the Chinese quarantine without that many of the benefits. It'll be interesting to see how much it really slows the progress of the epidemic. Be sure, though, that slowing the epidemic achieves something because it means that the surge of cases that strike the health system will be moderated and lower, and that will mean fewer deaths. But how many fewer deaths and whether it's worth it and whether you get most of the cost with only very few of the benefits, you'll only know after the epidemic. You can't know it now. It's unknowable. And what will also be unknowable, I guess, is the the impact on the world economy. Uh, Well, to me, the really big question on the economy is how many second order effects you get. And by that, I mean, you know, you had a decrease in demand growth for oil 
because of the disease, perhaps even a decrease in demand, the International Energy Agency said yesterday. And the second order effect of that was a blow up of the relations between Saudi Arabia and Russia and Saudi Arabia flooding the market. That's an interesting example of a second order effect. The question I have is, will we then see further ripple effects in the markets as uh, companies go bankrupt because they've got no income in order to pay their workers and pay their debts, as credit markets start to dry up because lenders are worried about lending money to companies that might go bankrupt, as companies outside the US run short of dollars uh, to service their loans, you could easily see them getting into trouble. So there, there are lots of stress points in the economy. And I think it's one thing to have a slowdown because demand is lower and supplies are a bit blocked. That's one thing I think the economy can cope with that. To me, the big danger is that there are these second order effects that start to spiral out of control. And we've seen that happen in oil. We haven't seen it happen anywhere else yet. But the, the thing to look out is for that, in my view. Edward, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. To hear more about the knock-on effects of the virus outbreaks, listen to this week's episode of our sister podcast, Money Talks, out later today. Our correspondents explore what lies behind Saudi Arabia's sudden oil price war, discuss how a dearth of dollars might exacerbate effects of the virus crisis, and look into how telemedicine is skyrocketing in China. Slovakia went to the polls at the end of last month, but it still doesn't have a government. That could change as early as today. The election's winner was Igor Matovic, a media tycoon turned anti-corruption politician. His party, Ordinary People and Independent Personalities, or Bolano, ran under the slogan, Let's Beat the Mafia Together. It unseated the Smear Party, which had been in power for 12 of the past 14 years. Now, Mr. Matovic is putting together a four-party coalition. The tricky business of divvying up cabinet posts, he says, is almost finished. Slovaks seem hungry for change. Yet, Mr. Matovic's win was a surprise, even to him. Certainly, a result like this would not have been expected either within the party or outside of it. And I think Mr. Matovic, when the first thing that he said the day after the election was that he thought that he was still dreaming after such a staggering result. Tom Nuttall is The Economist's Berlin bureau chief. Mr. Matovic has always been more of a rabble-rouser, more of a campaigner, more of a populist than he ever has been an active politician with executive experience. So the jury's very much out as to what kind of prime minister we, uh, we could expect him to be. And how is it that Mr. Matovic made his way into Slovakian politics in the first place? He's a self-made millionaire. He was a, a media tycoon. He owned a bunch of local newspapers across Slovakia. But he decided to enter politics for the, basically the same reason that he was able to win this last election, and that's portraying himself as an, a fighter against corruption in Slovakia. Slovakia, like several countries of the former Eastern Bloc, has um, battled, graft for decades, links between politicians, law enforcement, uh, oligarchs. And Matovic has been fighting against that from the beginning. He's used a range of techniques to do that, often sort of publicity stunts. Uh, there have been videos that he's, he's uh, put on Facebook, uh, traveling to other countries, identifying what he says are properties in places like the French Riviera owned by Slovak ministers. Um, and these things have, have gained him a lot of attention. How did he parlay that, that habit of, of political stunts into an actual political victory? 
What really made the difference, I think, and what really explains why he was able to do so well, so much better this time than in the past, was something that happened a couple of years ago in Slovakia. This was when Jan Kuciak, who was a young crusading journalist, was killed along with his fiancée at gunpoint in his house. And this triggered a wave of protest, the biggest protest that Slovakia had seen since 1989. Um, the first thing that happened was that the then Prime Minister Robert Fico had to resign. Later, Slovakia had a presidential election and an unabashed liberal, a former environmental campaigner called Zuzana Chapatova, was elected to the presidency. It's a relatively powerless role, but the symbolism of it was important. And then this energy was maintained in the general election campaign that we just seen in Slovakia. And I think the crucial thing is that Mr. Matovic, unlike some of the other parties who were competing in this space, it's a very fragmented political scene in Slovakia, he was able to present himself as the most credible alternative to Smer. This is the party, Robert Fico's party, that had been in government for most of the last 14 years. And so he was able to harness that feeling, uh, to ride the wave of anti-corruption sentiment in the country and, uh, and win a pretty striking election victory. So now that he's done that, what what is his his first order of business? He's he's got a, a government to put together, essentially of of a very new kind. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what he's trying to do is to put together a four party coalition. There's only going to be six parties in parliament, and. Pretty much the only thing that these parties agree on is that corruption is terrible and that they should do something about it. One of the parties in particular is called We Are Family. Slovaks have a, a tendency to come up with rather Baroque names for their political parties. Um, this is a sort of nationalist conservative party that sit in the European Parliament. It sits with Marine Le Pen's National Rally, with Matteo Salvini's Lega. It's not the sort of party that some Westerners will be overjoyed about seeing entering government. But essentially, Mr. Matovic, he wants to, or at least what he says, is that he wants a large enough majority that would enable him to change the constitution, which would do things like make it easier to prosecute judges and other senior officials who were guilty of graft and corruption. And once he gets that coalition together, what, what else is on the agenda besides fighting graft? That's really the question, because the parties in this proposed coalition disagree on a lot. Um, I spoke to someone called Edward Heger, who is tipped to be, he's from the same party as Mr. Matovic, uh, who's tipped to be a finance minister. And he was very keen to impress upon me that a government that he's part of would seek to do a lot more than just battle corruption. He said that one reason why Olano, his party, did so well is that not only did they focus on this crucial issue of corruption, but that Slovaks were fed up of governments that don't, as he put it, deliver anything to their citizens. So he was outlining a program of public service reform, um, health, education, law enforcement, these sorts of things that he would seek to pursue. Um, one of the problems is that some of the parties in this coalition might disagree on the means by which they would seek to reform the state. And they disagree on tax, on social policy. Some of them might even disagree on foreign policy. And given that the campaign itself focused very strongly on this issue of anti-corruption, and, and that was pretty much the only message that Mr. Matovic himself had. There's not really much of a mandate there for any particular variety of reform. So I think the jury is very much out on a, whether they can assemble a meaningful coalition deal between these parties, and if they can, then B, what sort of program they might seek to implement once they're in office. Or how long a coalition might even hang together. 
Indeed, yes. And as a political scientist from Bratislava pointed out to me, in the last parliament, the Olano MPs that were elected at the previous election, more than half of them had left the party by the time the parliament expired. Either they'd gone independent or they joined other parties or whatever else it is. And that's largely because Olano itself is such a one-man band. It was created by Mr. Matovic. It remains largely a vehicle for his own particular political career. He's even rumoured not to know all of the MPs, all 53 MPs, that have now been elected. He recruited a lot of them because they were celebrities, well-known in particular fields, so they could appeal to voters. But that doesn't necessarily speak to a particularly coherent political unit. And that's just within one party itself. And then you're dealing with a potential coalition of four parties. So yes, stability is not necessarily guaranteed over the next few years. So for those who simply wanted to vote Smear out and wanted to, to change the country's politics for the better, do you, what, what odds do you, do you give the eventual coalition for, for delivering on that? I think one of the interesting things that's happened in Slovakia in the last few years is that it has been pretty conclusively demonstrated that there's an extraordinarily strong appetite for politicians who are going to clean up the country or at least make a stab at doing so. That, I think, is going to provide a fairly strong incentive for those politicians who have just been elected to office to help bring it about. Because if they don't do so, then there are plenty of people waiting in the wings who will seek to do a better job in future. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Great pleasure. What do resilient, sustainable and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP, helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com. A few generations ago, being bilingual was deemed to be a setback, thanks to some flawed tests in America that showed polyglots had lower IQs. No one believes that anymore. Bilinguals themselves find it to be a benefit, not a detriment. I love being able to speak German because they have the best pop music in the world and I can understand all the edgy lyrics. I like being able to speak Polish because it is such a complicated language that it basically makes learning any other tongue relatively straightforward. I love the fact that I can speak French because it means that I can pronounce my own name, Catherine. Ich liebe es, Deutsch sprechen zu können, weil. Ja, więc uwielbiam mówić po polsku, ponieważ jest to język tak skomplikowany, że w sumie każdy inny. Mon prénom, qui est Catherine. So people who are bilingual tell you that it's one of the most important things in their life. It opens up another culture to you and millions of people that you can speak to. Lane Green writes Johnson, The Economist's column on language. But it turns out that there are also proposed non-linguistic cognitive health benefits to being bilingual. Well, what are the sort of proposed benefits that they go beyond simply uh, being able to speak another language? Yeah, curiously, a line of research has found that people who are bilingual 
on average get dementia about four years later than non-bilinguals. And then another strand of research has focused on what's called executive control or executive function, which means essentially doing complicated tasks while ignoring distractions, using your working memory, updating it frequently, and ignoring irrelevant information to do difficult multi-part tasks. And for some reason, bilinguals have shown in many studies to be better at those things than people who aren't bilingual. And what's the proposed mechanism there? Why would having a second language have those kinds of effects? The idea is that if you speak two languages, you are not only speaking the one, but you're always constantly suppressing the other. As soon as you see a picture of a cat, say, you might think of the English word cat and the Spanish word gato at the same time, and you've got to activate cat and suppress gato. This is seen as a kind of constant mental exercise that makes parts of the brain healthier. And it creates, in the case of the dementia studies, what's called a cognitive reserve that helps the brain stay healthier later. Because switching languages is not unlike switching attentional control in other complicated tasks. People got very excited about this, and other researchers tried to replicate the studies in their own labs. And quite a lot of these papers have come out showing a positive result. There's also been a surprising number of failures to replicate those studies, and so there's a lot of head-scratching going on. Any guesses as to why these results aren't replicable? Well, one line of research now is to try to find different kinds of bilinguals and see what elements of their individual qualities and habits might play into this. For example, how old were they when they started learning the second language? How well do they speak both languages? Because some bilinguals speak both languages about the same, but that's actually quite rare. Most people speak one better than the other. Another variable, and this happens to be one that's getting some attention now, is frequency of switching. Do you go back and forth between your two languages many times a day, or did you come from one country, move to another, and you hardly ever switch? And in the case of a recent paper I read, that frequency of switching was one of the best predictors of who would be better at these cognitive tasks that involved other kinds of switching and ignoring irrelevant information and so forth. I guess that makes sense in that if a bit of mental exercise confers these benefits, then then more exercise confers more of them. But are those the only sort of dimensions on which this might have an effect? Well, as anybody who spent a lot of time in the gym might have observed, you, you hit what you call a plateau sometimes. You can't get a lot more benefit. And an interesting study in Hyderabad in India actually found out, looking at the later onset of dementia in bilinguals, that illiterate subjects in the test actually had more of this effect, i.e. bilingualism created a later onset of dementia for them, than those who were literate. And one of the hypotheses here is that people who are already doing, say, already really cognitively demanding work, they work in an office switching tasks constantly and multitasking, they're getting a lot of the effects of bilingualism by doing something else that's a little bit like bilingualism. And so two languages don't give them a lot of extra benefit because they're doing a lot with their brains already. So it's good to do, but at some point the extra benefit starts to level off. You're a polyglot, Lane. I mean, do you sense a distinct benefit from speaking the languages that you do, given that you also have a fairly cognitively demanding job? I'd say in my personal life, I'm, I'm in a polyglot family, too. My wife is from Denmark, and uh, my son is bilingual in Danish and English. One thing that you get out of bilingualism, even without these other advantages, is just a perspective on language. If my wife and I realize we're using a word in two different ways, there's different words for clean up in Danish, depending on whether you're cleaning surfaces with a spray or if you're tidying the place up. Knowing that there are two different words on Danish made my wife and me realize she was talking about cleaning with chemicals and rag, and I was talking about picking clothes up off the floor. And so you're thinking about what words mean all the time when you're switching back and forth and trying to deal with someone in their language. And that actually turns out to be really useful because you're thinking about what you really mean. Lane, thanks for your time, or, or should I say gracias, or grazie, or dankuvel? De nada, prego, alstublieft. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.